Hi everybody, my name is Nick Beard. I'm the audiovisual director here at Peninsula Covenant Church, or PCC. Welcome to our message podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, it's been great for me. Hi, I'm Gary. I'm on staff here. It's been great for me to uh, follow Jim to all four of our gatherings. And as we've been going to all of our gatherings, he's been saying, well, who's that? Well, they're on staff. Who's that? They're on staff. He goes, man, you have, a, you have a great staff. And uh, wouldn't you agree? We have an amazing staff. Maybe some of you agree. I agree. Um, but the secret of PCC, the best aspect of PCC is you. You, uh, because of you, we are an amazing church, and so I'm so grateful to be with you. And again, on days like today, when I go through all four services, it's been wonderful, amazing to see the life of God lived out all over this campus and then down the city. Um, I wanted to bring a quote to you that I read before I bring Jim up. It's by Mother Teresa. She said, if you want to bring happiness to the world, go home and love your family. We really believe that uh, the way that we are going to best influence this city is one home at a time. And we don't want to just put that over you and have you try to live into that in a tough way. We want to equip you for that. And so in this Love Does series, we're going to turn for the bulk of the series uh, coming up for the next few weeks and equip you where you live in the home. Today to do that, we brought in literally one of the um, leading thought leaders and researchers on that uh, easily one of the top five men that's influenced my life um, through his ministry and then personally as well. Uh, Jim Burns has over 20 million books in print around teenagers in the home in marriage in 30 different languages. Uh, and I can tell you, having been in his home, uh, he lives it. He's got three tremendous daughters, two sons-in-law, and two grandkids that are really uh, wonderful people. And we get the chance to be equipped on something that may seem impossible, understanding your teenager. You ready for that? And uh, some of you are going right now, and he had, like, he was really well received at 855. Maybe you're saying, gosh, I don't have teenagers. Here's the deal. I really do believe Mother Teresa's right, that if we're going to um, be an influence in the world, it starts in the home. Some of us, all of us, can adopt uh, relationally kids in their adolescence. They're on our streets. Uh, we pass them by school. So we all learn from this. Would you please give a huge PCC welcome to Dr. Jim Burns. say one more thing, and Brian may have said this, but um, we have Jim's books and resource table uh, out here, and he's not asking me to push this at all, but the purity code was huge, is huge, and uh, he'll reference that, but that and many other books are over there. Okay, Jim. All right. Well, stand there just for a second. Is he like the fashion god right now? He's got the blue sweater with the shoestrings, same color. Does he color coordinate every time? Every Sunday. Amazing. I'm, I'm wildly impressed. I've known Gary and Ann for a long time, and actually, Kathy and I, uh, Kathy was with me, my wife was with me yesterday. We went out to dinner, and as we were back in our hotel room, we just said, wow, if we lived anywhere near here, we would want Gary to be our, our pastor. And you do have a great staff, too, by the way. I mean, I'm now questioning Brian's ability to drive, um, but <laughs> what can I say? 
One of the things that I love about PCC, and there's a lot I love about PCC, but your emphasis on the family. We work at an, I work at an organization called Homeward, and one of our phrases is when you reach the family, you reach the world. And I think you're doing that, you know, and you're doing that through students. And how great for me to have the privilege to talk to you about teenagers when most of you in this room are not teenagers. Some of you have teenagers. But to have people like Danny and Katie, um, you know, on this staff to, to love on teenagers, um, that's a pretty incredible thing. And uh, so anyway, it's a great church. And, you know, the truth is, is that when you reach the family, you do reach the world. And, and fascinating enough, you could be a liberal or, re, or a conservative and you still love your family. You could be a Democrat or Republican and still love your family. And so the fascinating side is, is that how my vision as I started, you know, getting to know more about PCC is how great it would be if your community looked at this church as a place to help families succeed. And, uh, and I think one of the ways to do that is to have kind of conversations like we're going to have. Now, today, uh, Gary asked me to teach on understanding your teen, which is kind of interesting. It's a little bit of an oxymoron. If you could understand everything about teenage years, yeah, well, good luck, okay? Uh, my experience was I have three daughters, so we have no hormones or drama in our life, of course. And uh, it was age 12. It was Golden Spoon Yogurt. And it was Christy, my oldest, and we pulled up. We had lived in the same house all these years, so she had been to Golden Spoon Yogurt, our favorite, all the time. Dad dates, and we pull up, just like we have done hundreds of times. And she goes, in a panic, Dad, I can't go in there. I go, why? She goes, well, there's boys in there that I know, and I don't want them to see me with my dad. Oh, I just died right there. I honestly thought I was going to pass through that. My background is youth ministry. I figured I was a cool dad, at least in my own mind, was not a cool dad for her. And there it was. She had become a teen. Okay. Two years later, the exact same place, Golden Spoon Yogurt, Becca, my middle child, we drive in and she says, hey, dad, can, can you go in and just get it? She had never asked this ever, but she goes, can you go in and get it to go and we can eat it someplace else? And I go, well, why? Don't, don't you want to sit outside? It was a beautiful day. Don't you want to sit outside where we usually sit? She said, well, actually there's boys in there and I don't want them to see me with my dad. And I went, it has happened to me. And, and, and I have the same story with our Heidi, but you know, different. It was at a movie theater. But... <laughs> With boys, and I had taken her to the movie theater with her girlfriends, and boys came out, and you know, I don't know why it's always around boys. But the fascinating side to that was that for Kathy and I, we would say, who is the stranger in the house? And we honestly thought, not right, but we thought that we wouldn't have this moment with our teens. And, and our girls, they reminded us of, um, when they were children, they reminded us of, of dogs. Okay, there's dogs and cats, right? There's dog lovers, cat lovers, and you know, I'll just admit I'm a dog lover, and you cat lovers, you need prayer. But <laughs> our kids were like, we have golden retrievers. Our kids were like golden retrievers. They would just come up to us. I mean, I could kick my golden retriever, and he would be right back at me, I love you, you know, wanting to, it's kind of creepy to say this, but you know, wanting to lick me in the face and all that. My kids didn't lick me in the face, I'll just let you know that. But then when they got to be teens, my kids became like cats. And we had Milo the cat, and Milo would, would ever so often come onto my lap. I'd be watching TV, and Milo would show up and purr and kind of look at me like, you're wonderful, and then all of a sudden go, and boom, and we didn't see Milo for a long time. And was moody, and in some ways, that was my experience with my teenage kids, Okay. However, I think it's really, really, really important that we understand some things about the teenage years, that all of us understand things about the teenage years. And my actual goal is that when you walk out of here, you'll be inspired to say, well, love does and love dares 
love teenagers no matter where you're at on that spectrum, okay? Now, the teenage years, it's very important that you understand this from the beginning, is a transition. Childhood is a ch somewhat of a transition, but when you're a child, you are a child, and everybody knows you're a child. And then there's the teen years, but the teen years are only the transition to adulthood. And really, the word teenager is a pretty new word in the English vocabulary. Did you know that? It was actually the first time it was ever mentioned was in 1942. Gary was in college, and um, <laughs> no. But 1942, and it was a magazine called Scientific American. Can you believe that? So that's when the guy coined the phrase, and it just you know, picked up, and that's then what we called them. Now, I did my PhD in adolescence, and what's funny about that is people didn't want to know, you know, because we're in the church, well, what was Jesus like as a teenager? And I want to say, they didn't even have teenagers in that day. In fact, fascinating enough, if, if, if you get this, you were a child to age 12. Think about bar mitzvahs. You all have friends who would still to this day have bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. And then what is the reason for a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah? Is that you become an adult. Now, obviously, today we don't treat them like adults. Back then they did. Mary, the mother of Jesus. She probably had a, her baby Jesus between the ages of 12 and 14. I know some of you have middle school kids and young high school. Can you imagine? But that was the norm. So when... So you didn't, there was no such thing as teenage years. There was, there was really very little look at adolescence, and yet we see one glimpse from Jesus in kind of the teenage years. So what, we, what do we know about Jesus? Think about your Bible knowledge. You know him as a baby, and then he sort of shows up as an adult. And there's a big gap in those years, but there is one time, and it's found in the book of Luke, too, at the end of that particular chapter, and I'm just going to kind of add, I'm not going to read it to you, I'll just tell you the story a little bit. So what happened was um, he kind of was an adolescent, but not like we would know it, but he sort of acted like an adolescent. Now, I just said something that could really get people mad at me, but he sort of did. Let me explain it to you. So what happened was they went to the feast of the Passover. They lived in a rural village, Mary, Joseph, Jesus, and that probably meant some of the other family members lived in this rural village. And th about three times a year, they would make a trek to Jerusalem, which was at that time the big city, and that's where they would do their sacrifices and celebrate the feast and whatnot, and they would do it about three times a year. When a child was 12, that meant that they were now considered an adult, and they would then also participate in that feast. They all traveled to Jerusalem, um, and most likely how they did it was because they kind of needed to stay in packs. It would be a family, and it would be um, maybe the whole neighborhood would go. And so they apparently celebrated the feast. Now they're going back home. Now, again, remember, because you're doing this with big groups, Mary and Joseph assumed, apparently wrong, that Jesus was with somebody else, one of the family members, friends, neighbors, something. They get almost to their home, which is a pretty good distance away, walking, and they said, where's Jesus? So it says in the Bible, and you can read this in the Bible, that Mary and Joseph were worried. Every parent understands this that they were worried because no Jesus, he didn't show up. They didn't know where he was. It's the fear that all of us have, no matter what the age of a child. And so what did they do? They immediately rushed back to Jerusalem, but it's, not gonna, it's taken a long time. What, can you imagine what the conversation would be like getting there? And so they search for Jesus, and apparently they find him in the temple. And actually, there's a conversation that's very, very short in the Bible, but it's a conversation that I think is somewhat intriguing, because basically in the Bible, if you look at a modern version, it's Mary and Joseph finding him in the temple and saying, Jesus, what are you doing? And what were you thinking? You know, we've been very worried. And I love the, the 
the phrase that Jesus says, he says, and teenagers could use this phrase too, you should have known what I was doing, as if parents are always supposed to know what they're doing. But even Mary and Joseph, this is the mother of God, had a misunderstanding with their somewhat teenager, and in the Bible it says, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. If you've ever had a teenager, you know exactly what that means, see? Now, fascinating enough, there's a scripture that does talk about adolescence. It's found in the book of Proverbs 30. And I love this. This is the message version of it, so it's kind of more modern. But it says this in 30, 18, and 19. Three things amaze me. No, four things I will never understand. How an eagle flies so high in the sky how a snake glides over a rock, how a ship navigates the ocean, and why adolescents act the way that they do. Now, you might want to say, why would we give a whole day to understanding teens? I mean, what's so important about that compared to some of the other issues that you're looking at in this series, and it's a great series? Well, first of all, let me say that it's important for us to understand, and my goal is for us to walk out of here saying, who are they and why are they important to us? Now, if you have a teenager, obviously, this is right for you, but it's for all of us. First of all, let me say this. When I was uh, doing my, my grad work, I was at Princeton in the 1970s, I learned that uh, uh, adolescence was 13 to 18. That's probably what many of you adults learned. Today, that's not the case. Okay. Today, what they're saying, this happened July or January 17, 2018, so it hadn't been that long ago. Great Britain moved adolescence to 10 to age 24. Okay. And here's why. They did that because, really, puberty is getting earlier. Typically, puberty doesn't happen right at 10, but it's the process of beginning at 10 and with all the things that are happening with kids. For example, the first time they're going to see pornography is age 11. Well, that's kind of more teenage. So you've got 10 to 24, and 24 is when your brain quits growing. We didn't know that even when I was in the 70s, when I was doing some of my work in the 80s when I was doing my PhD, we thought the brain quit growing at age 16. So what they're saying now is it's a longer time period, and you actually have childhood, teen, emerging adult, adult, and elderly. And so we've got this new area called emerging adult that's, that Great Britain just threw into the teenage factor, and you know some of that's probably right. But the question we always have to ask is, you know, why is this important to us? Well, let me tell you. It's the, at this age, this is the age, that 10 to 25 age in some ways, is the age that shapes culture. So crazy enough, you could be older. You could be me. I'm 64 years old. I'm still influenced by the teen culture because the teen culture is what shapes culture. I was speaking in Washington, D.C. in November, and I, it was a secular event, and uh, I was also, another speaker there was the marketing uh, vice president of Coca-Cola. She'd actually been a marketing person at one of the big tech firms here. She's been all over. She has a great resume, but she, she is the key person looking at marketing for Coca-Cola, but she gave a talk on the millennials. And one of the things she said, and I'll never forget this, she said, we focus on teens. Now, she wasn't just talking about Coca-Cola. She was talking about marketing. We focus on teens and emerging adults to identify cultural trends from morals and values, fashion, consumerism, and of course, media. So what I'm trying to say here is whether you have a child who's a, an, an adolescent or not, we are being focused and, and influenced by you know, what goes on with teen. Let me give, for example, a, an illustration of a guy named Robert Pittman. You may not know Robert Pittman, but you've perhaps been influenced by him. He's the, one of the creators of MTV over 30 years ago. And then he went on to be a CEO at, at Time Warner AOL, 
Um, he's had other really high powerful jobs. Today he's the CEO of iHeartRadio. And so, you know, so he still has continued to be, you know, a major factor in, in, in media and marketing. But what he said when he started MTV, and, and remember, MTV has now changed. It's not as influential. But back when MTV was at its peak, the average high school kid watched 10 hours a week of MTV, and they're not coming to church for 10 hours, I'll tell you that much. And what he said was this, we're not creating a music channel, we're actually creating a culture. And that's exactly what MTV did. So again, the point being that if we're as adults, we want to care for this segment of the population. It's not just Danny and Katie and the others who are influencing them here at the church, it's all of us. And I want to take a look at some of the distinctives of this age group and why, again, to understand teens. Now, some of it's going to be obvious and some of it you might not even agree with me on, and that's fine. But a couple of the distinctives, the first distinctive is one I'm sure we all agree, that this generation is shaped by technology, okay? I actually call them screenagers. It was 2008, and guess what happened in 2008? They were more influenced by TV, and then it switched. And now they had more hours on the internet, and it will never go back. Okay, so this is a generation who they do their relationships online. They look at pornography online. Greatest distributor of internet pornography is this thing right here. Ages 12 to uh, 17, greatest new users of internet pornography, both for boys. Girls a little bit later, but they're right behind boys. First age is going to be age 11. Okay, now I could whine about technology all day. But the truth is, is that technology is not all bad. Technology is also good. We're using technology right now. You use technology for good. You use it for bad. It's, it's just not neutral. It does have a powerful effect, and it's affecting kids. I work with an organization at times called eHarmony.com. One of my mentors is a guy named Neil Clark Warren. He's 83 years old. Um, he's a Christian. He's a marriage expert, and he founded eHarmony. And he was helping me understand that how, how much the world has changed. Now, for you who are quite a bit older, you may not understand this. The younger generation, they totally get it. But one out of six marriages in 2016, and we don't have the statistic for 2017, I don't know why, but in 2016, met online. The year before, it was one out of seven. So it's going more and more, even meeting to get married is happening online. See, so this is a generation that does that. So as parents, we've got to be, and grandparents and people who love kids, we've got to be aware of, of, of this. And, and frankly, we have to understand that you may have an opinion about media. You may have a, an opinion about technology, but it's here to stay. And it's going to influence kids, and kids have accepted it you know, fully, good or bad. So parents have to have what we call, you know, they have to have a, a way to create media-safe homes today. And they have to help their kids learn to discern all the stuff that's coming at them via media. I was speaking to kids. I used to speak to about a quarter of a million kids a year. That was my job. I didn't have hair then, but, you know, I was younger. And, um, and I used to say to, to, to adults that, you know, kids make major decisions when they're in their teens, for good or bad, Okay. Well, one of the things that happened was just recently I was speaking to them about a decision they needed to make about media and technology in their life. And so I opened the session. There was 800 kids. and I don't oftentimes speak as much to kids as I used to. But I said, how many of you, 800 kids in a room, I said, how many of you believe it's possible to be addicted to Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat? I could have named a whole bunch of others. And fascinating enough, Facebook, kids are jumping off of Facebook. You know why? 
because you're on Facebook as adults, okay? So they're like, we'll find something else. But 800 hands went up. Is that amazing? 800 hands out of 800 said it's possible to be addicted, okay? And then I said, well, how many of you are addicted? 798. I watched two kids put their hands down. I'm not even sure they were, you know, telling the truth. And so what we have here is we have technology today that is so amazing. I was talking with one of our board members yesterday who is up here in the, in the Bay Area, and he's a venture capitalist, and he works in technology. And we were talking about gaming and the difference of gaming from, like, a game that some of you oldies would have played called Pong to, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's it, to now it's virtual reality. You're inside the game. It's remarkable. I mean, some of you might be developing that stuff. I mean, it's incredible. I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying the world has changed. But it is addictive. It's also distractive. I mean, we obviously know that it's distractive when you're driving. But it is distractive. It can be distractive in relationships. It can be distractive in so many things. Say a kid who gets connected to pornography. I mean, that's a distraction. You think they're doing their homework in their room, and they're not. Wi-Fi actually made it harder to kind of monitor where kids are at. I, I love this. In Beijing, they now have sidewalks. So look at this, sidewalk. And it's, it basically, uh, this is right in the, the city of Beijing. And so what happens is if you're going to text, you go down one way, and then if you're texting, you go down the other way. Because people kept running into each other, and they were having a medical problem. The, people were getting sent to the hospital. In London, most of us looked something in England in the last day. I think there was a wedding going on. Caution, texters. You know why? These dudes are walking off the steps, and they're getting hit by these taxis. See? Honolulu. I was in Honolulu in March speaking at something, and my wife said, you got to put your phone down. I said, why? I was talking to my daughter as we were walking across the street in Waikiki, and she said, it's illegal to walk across the street and be on your phone in Honolulu, and it's actually a good idea. Okay? It is distractive. Look at this one. He has a whale, you know, about ready to breach, and he doesn't even see the whale because he's like, you know, talking to somebody through text. I mean, seriously. So the point that I'm saying again is we have to be able to get our arms around technology, not just, you know, we have parents who just say, you know, it's all bad. Well, if you do that, you're going to lose your kids, see? And so at the same time, there's, there are things that we have to learn to, you know, monitor and figure out, Okay. And that's an important issue, but, you know, they are shaped by technology. They are screenagers. The other one, this one is, is unique because it kind of affects all of us, and it's this phrase. They, talking about teens and emerging adults, they view tolerance as one of the major traits of a loving person. So the problem is, is we have a biblical worldview that actually isn't always tolerant to certain things. Okay, and yet we're called, and we, ought, we need to be tolerant, we need to be loving to all, Jesus showed us that. But what do we do with some of those issues? A lot of teenagers, a lot of emerging adults would describe the church, even kids who are in the church, would describe the church as judgmental, hypocritical, and anti-everything. And they think all of that is in the Bible, say So let's take two issues, and again, you may disagree on a couple of these issues, that's fine, but I want to tell you at least my thought on them. I call it the cringe factor for adults. The first one is cohabitation. So when Jimmy Burns went to Anaheim High School in the shadows of Disneyland in the 1970s, 74% of kids said they would not live with someone before instead of marriage. That's the statistic, 74%. Now, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but I still believe that too. Okay, it was just kind of, if you're American, that's kind of the case that happened. And again, some people, I'm sure, still lived it with each other. 
Today, over 75% of these same age-level kids believe that you can live with someone before or instead of marriage. They would call it pre-marriage, and some people might call it pretend marriage, and some people might just call it shacking up. But the interesting side to it is, and I just wrote a blog on this, and I, and I want you to hear this. If you went and read the blog, you might say, well, you know, he's a Christian and he didn't use a whole lot of Bible. I chose not to use a whole lot of Bible because I, I talked, the title of the blog was The Science of Cohabitation. And so I took it from science and I took it from the secular world. Here's just name three real quickly. One is, if you cohabitate, there's a much greater chance that you'll get a divorce. Now, that's not my statistic. That's not some Christian whining about it. It's what, this, what science tells us, that you will have a much greater chance, almost twice as much, maybe even more than twice as much, a chance of having an adultery in your marriage if you get married, after you've had, been in cohabitation. I mean, that kind of makes sense. Another one is that you have less sexual satisfaction. Now, I made a list because there's abuse, there's other kinds of things that go pretty interesting. But what happens is, is if I made a statement that cohabitation may not be their wisest thing to do, then there's people who are saying, well, you're not being tolerant. Well, they can cohabitate if that's what they want to do, but, but I'm not saying it's best for them, see? And so we have a group who thinks, well, if you say anything negative about that, but yet the Bible says that a man will leave his father and mother, be united, it's a sexual verse, be united to his wife, and the two will become one. I mean, that, that sounds sexual to me, see? And so, again, we struggle with that. The other one, I've already mentioned it, is pornography. I mean, it frankly is the issue that could take this generation down. So what did I say? I mean, I watched some of you when I said average age, they were going to see pornography is age 11. So I wrote that book that Gary held up. And so today, all over America and around the world, actually, they have these purity code weekends. And this is a big season for purity code weekends because for some reason they do it in the spring. I think that's funny. Um, but I was in West Monroe, Louisiana, a church of about 15,000, and they're having a purity code weekend. And so I spoke to the students on, on Friday night, and then they had a youth evangelist do all day Saturday, and I spoke to parents. And then Sunday, we had a big, you know, service, well, Saturday evening and Sunday, we had services. And su Saturday mo Sunday morning, I'm, I'm in the green room talking to the youth evangelist who I had just met, and he was actually using our purity code stuff for the students. And I said, hey, how was it? He goes, I'm stunned. I go, why? He goes, I took the boys and just did a boy thing, and then we took the girls and just did a girl thing. And with the boys, I said, how many of you, and these are high school, middle school, how many of you have not seen pornography? And then he looks at me and he goes, you know, I have an 11-year-old. He goes, zero. He said, not one kid raised their hand. Homeward, we have something called the culture update. It's really cool. And we quoted this, so it's not our, our deal, but University of Toronto they had a grant to study men at University of Toronto who had not seen pornography. They got a lot of money to do this, but they couldn't get a group of men to study because they couldn't find any men who, uh, or at least enough men, who had not seen pornography. So what does that say? So what that says is, is that sometimes within the world we say, well, you know, everything goes, but it's affecting us big time. So when you look at pornography, for example, how does it affect kids? Well, first of all, there's five parts to an escalation. Number one is they view pornography, and they viewed pornography. I mean, again, when they're 11, it may not be that they're even looking at the worst of stuff, but, you know, it was a pop-up it could have been, or their friend said, you know, I want to, you know, want to see her with her top off or whatever. So you, when you view pornography, your brain takes a picture, and it stays there. I'm 64 years old. I remember the first time I saw a woman without her top on, it was eighth grade. It was in a magazine. What was the magazine? It wasn't Playboy. It was National Geographic, okay? <laughs> it was legal. I could keep that 
puppy right on my bedstand. And my parents were like, good, he's finally reading something good, see? And it wasn't a pretty picture. I mean, this woman was in the Amazon. She had a skirt. I remember it still so well. She had a spear. She had a cigarette in her mouth. She had no top on. Again, it's not a pretty picture, but it's in my mind. Think about what kids see today, see? And continue to see, so they view pornography. Then you get addicted. Now, addiction, if you're an addiction specialist, you will, you will agree with me that this is an oversimplification, but it just says, I want more. And so you now want more and more. And it begins, point three is that it escalates, and then you get desensitized. So what was gross two weeks ago or two months ago or whatever isn't gross anymore. And then you act it out. Now, you first acted out in your mind, so we've got a bunch of kids who are looking at the opposite sex. This is hard enough when you're not looking at pornography. But you've got a bunch of kids who are looking at the opposite sex as a sex object. See? That's not what Danny and Katie and others are teaching. I'll, I'll guarantee you that. And then, so you act it out in your mind, and then you want to act it out in person. And so I know this is kind of gross to talk about in church, but, you know, the first sex act is usually imitating pornography today. That's not good. And, and one of the reasons we have to understand this when it comes to the fact is that, yeah, tolerance, I mean, we want to be loving. Love dares to, to actually be tolerant and caring and loving, but we also have to stand up for biblical values and not be mean-spirited or negative about it. So what I'm saying is we have to teach kids, it's not that, it's this, and then create a healthy Really, a healthy view of sexuality. I call it a theology of sexuality. A you know, what does God say about sex? He created it. He sees it as good. I don't know. He wants the best for you, so he's got some boundaries here. But you know, all studies show this. And, and by the way, this, this is secular studies. This is science. What they show is that all studies show that the more powerful um, sex education comes from home. In fact, the more value-centered, positive sex education that's done by home, the less promiscuous kids will be. But let me show you this. You know, most of us don't do it. You know why? Because our parents didn't talk to us about it. How many of you had your parents tell you about sex ed, you know, good, healthy sex ed? Yeah, about five of you. <laughs> it's not good, <laughs> okay? Brian's gonna do a study now on that, on driving and healthy sexuality is the same, same thing. But again, the point that I'm saying here is because we didn't receive good, healthy sexuality, it's awkward. I mean, I write books on this subject. I've got books for three to five-year-olds. And, and the funny thing is, is that my kids would say, yeah, dad did talk to us about it, but, you know, he was kind of awkward. You know, his ears turned red and his bald head sweat, you know, and that's true. I mean, it's, it's, you're going to have an awkward conversation and continue to have a dialogue with it. But the point being is that who, if, not, if not you, who? The number one place kids get sex education is from the internet, See, So again, it's back to this issue, and what we want to teach them is what I call the purity code, in honor of God. So you bring God into this, my family, my future spouse, I commit to sexual purity. I'm looking for a million kids. We, I think we have over a million kids who have made that commitment. That's awesome. And how do you do it? Four biblical values. You honor God with your body. First, first Corinthians 6. You renew your mind for good. Romans 12. And in fact... I tell people that the most powerful sex organ is not your private parts, it's your mind. The Bible says in, in Psalm 119, turn your eyes from worthless things. Hmm. And then guard your heart. You know, Friday night I stood up here on this stage and I spoke to married people about guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. And that was not on sexuality. It was on priorities. 
And so it's not just a sexual term, but what, what if a new generation of kids heard from their parents and their grandparents and, and other adults, guard your heart. It's going to determine the course of your life. Some of you, if you would have guarded your heart, you'd be in a different situation. You wouldn't have carried baggage into relationships or whatever it might have been. And so with joy and in positivity, we, we share these things. So yeah, tolerance is great and love is great, but you've got to put those, separate them. And yet this generation, it's the one time I'm going to struggle with this generation because I love this generation. The other thing about the teen years, another distinctive, is that they... Um, they have a complicated faith. So Gen Z, that's the new teens. Gen Z has double the amount of atheists as the millennials. Isn't that amazing? One of the things that Danny and Katie and others would struggle with here, Brian would, Gary does, is that 65% of kids who graduate from high school from good churches like this will leave the church that next year. That's a stain in the world in which I live in. But there's some new things coming out. And again, I'm talking about science. George Barna, uh, uh, Richard Ross in, in, at Fort Worth are now saying 300% better chance of kids staying in the church if there are faith conversations in the home. See. Another aspect of kids is that they're not in a hurry to grow up. I mean, some people just, you got, you, I mean, my parents out of high school, then they get married. Ours is out of college, you know, it's, it keeps changing. So they're just not in a hurry. They meander toward responsibility. They meander toward marriage. Here, here watch this video. This is a, a, a golf commercial. More golf when the kids grow up. Problem is, this little guy doesn't want to grow up. Dad, are these wings free range? Don't make the same mistake I made. Use golf now and instantly book a tee time at over 6,000 courses. It's easy to find the right tee time at the right course for the right price. Dad, the Wi-Fi is being slow. Kids, they grow up so slow. Why golf later when you can golf now? Go play. They grow up so slow. But you know what's interesting about it? Is they are meandering toward responsibility at later ages. But you know what they want? You know what the number one thing a millennial wants? Is a healthy marriage and a healthy family. And so even organizations like Homeward, we are focusing on this new generation of young parents because we're saying, wait, they're anxious to have a healthy family. They want to do this stuff. When we talk about sex ed, oh, they're ready to talk to their kids. Like, should I talk to them at one? No, please don't. That's yucky, okay? But, you know, they want to do stuff. And so that's a positive thing. Now, some of you may look at this message as a message of, of not very hopeful message. But it's actually a really hopeful message. And I want to I close, in a sense, with, with this illustration. It's a Bible story. It's 1 Samuel 17. You've got the Philistines on one hill. You've got the Israelites on this hill. You've got a man named Goliath. You all know the story. He's a big dude, about nine feet tall, and he comes down. He chooses off the sight of God, and he actually mocks God. But in the process, he says, if you'll send one person and fight me, if I win, then you will be our slaves, talking to the Israelites, but if... I lose, then we will be your slaves. Let's, cut, let's make a deal and not have a big fight. David shows up. Now, he's so young, he's not a warrior. He's not in the, he, was, he brought food for his brothers. And he sees this, and he kind of gets angry. Not like mean-spirited anger, but he gets angry because this guy's mocking God. So David goes to Saul and says, I'll fight him. And Saul must have laughed. This is a shepherd who plays the harp, meaning he, he's not a warrior. When all of a sudden, Saul says, fine, here's my armor, go down. Well, he puts the armor on, it lasts five seconds, he takes the armor off, and 
he looks at Goliath, and he had a different attitude than the rest of Israel. The rest of Israel looked at Goliath and said, he's so big, we can't win, right? David said, he's so big, we can't miss. And that's why I want to say that with you. The culture is changing, but in, what we tend to do as Christians is we tend to whine and gripe and complain about it instead of saying, no, it's so big, we can't miss. And so in, clo- in conclusion, I'll only name these three, but healthy families practice integrity. The Bible says that the man or woman of integrity walks securely. And I would say that the man or woman of integrity who walks securely will have kids who walk securely. By the way, integrity doesn't mean perfection. It means authenticity. Today's teenagers, they want authenticity. They want somebody who's real, see. Also, healthy families help kids move from dependence to independence. Helicopter parenting, that doesn't work. Helicopter parenting causes a failure to launch. And so what we've got to do is take the monkey off of our back and place it on their back. There's a proverb that says, not a Christian proverb, but a proverb that says, if you walk your child all the way into the village by carrying them, they'll never know how far the village is. And so what we've got to do is, it's not about raising obedient children. It's about raising responsible adults. And we learn sometimes even through our failures. So we move them from dependence on us toward independence, or they'll fail to launch. And and lastly, Healthy families practice what I call the power of being there. Your presence matters. Even Jesus, which was really unique in the book of Mark. Jesus took a little child, placed him among them and said, when you welcome one of these children, you welcome me. What he did was he, he invited children to be present. And it's the power of being there. If we're too busy, what happens is, is our kids will find somebody else to be influenced by. We become overcommitted, underconnected. Somebody once said to me, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. That might be one of the biggest issues in terms of helping them become the responsible. And so, you know, somebody gives a message like this. I mean, it's a very different style of speaking. I realize it's a very different message than what we typically hear in church. But the question we have to ask is, is what's our place with teenagers? Some of you, you know exactly, you live with these teenagers. But for others, what do we do with the message like this? God, what do you want us to do with it? Well, just tell you this. They're not going away, and they will not respond to just brutal negativity. But when you pay attention to them, when you you support the, the youth and children's ministry here, when you support the family ministry, what you're doing is you're you're helping this generation who are amazing students. They are amazing but you're helping this generation make some right and wise decisions that will last forever. Are you ready to do it? I think you are. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for families. Thank you for PCC that cares for families like they do. And some of us haven't thanked you for our teenagers for a while, and we thank you for them. They are shaping the way we do life. God, help us to be people who care deeply for kids. And again, whether they be teenagers or whether they be young kids because they're right around the corner, help us to be people who, who realize that your presence in our life matters as our presence in their life matters. We love you, and we commit kids to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church Podcast. We believe you're here for a reason, and we would love to connect with you more. 
Our campuses are located in Redwood City, California. You can find us online at wearepcc.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for We Are PCC.